This summer, we've been studying through the New Testament book of Philippians together. And in fact, we uh, got to the end, through the end, together of the, that book uh, last week. Now, some of you have been asking me, so Jason, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do next now that we've gotten through the book of Philippians? Well, the answer is that we're actually going to go back and we're going to hone in. We're, we're going to go back and we're going to focus our attention in on just two uh, paragraphs in Philippians chapter 4. And so uh, the fact is that we live in a very unique time in history where there are these rather unique challenges, challenges that the Bible addresses. But after hearing from a number of you this pa these past weeks, I've realized that it would be good for us to kind of go back and to revisit some of these things in Philippians chapter 4. And so uh, we want to spend some more time on this. I know that I need this, and I believe that this passage of Scripture here that we're going to spend some time in over the next four weeks is so important for us to learn and to understand and to apply to our lives. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning or you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you, open that Bible app, but join me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. As we kind of get started here this morning, those of you who know me know that I'm not much of a cook. I, I, I can't, I, I don't really know my way around the kitchen very well. But I, this morning I have a cooking appliance with me that I know a number of you have at home. And I've heard from some of you that this little thing uh, can make your life so much easier. What, what we have this morning is an instant pot. Now, I'm not a scientist, um, but I, I've heard that the Instant Pot, and I, I guess the way that the Instant Pot works is that it uses pressure and heat in order to cook things really fast. And so you can cook a cheesecake in this thing, and you can cook casseroles and pot roasts and eggs and uh, rice, yogurt, potatoes, you name it. You can cook it in this Instant Pot, and it gets done in a relatively short period of time. Now... The reason why I'm talking about this Instant Pot here this morning is because I want to use this as kind of a metaphor, uh, a, a metaphor for the increasing and intensifying anxiety that we can feel. It's a great metaphor for the heat and the pressure as worry and fear begins to increase in our lives. As we come back to the book of Philippians we see in this letter that was written, it was written by a pastor who, was, who has very good reason to feel intensifying anxiety. But not only is this letter uh, written by a pastor who could feel the anxiety, but it's written to a people who had good reason for worry and fear in life. We have a, a map here this morning that we're going to put up on the screen, and I want to just kind of remind us of what's going on here. This is the Mediterranean area. This is the boot of Italy. And our pastor is a man by the name of Paul. Paul's writing this letter about 60 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. And Paul is in Rome. Now Paul's not just visiting the city of Rome. He's actually in prison there. He's chained up to a Roman guard. And you maybe can already begin to feel a little bit of the fear increasing. Here's the thing about Paul's world. There's no timeline for when his court case is going to be heard. I mean, in our culture, 
they're, uh, they, they, it starts out with this arraignment, and then they move to the pre-trial conference, and uh, a couple of weeks after that, you have the trial itself is scheduled, and there's this probable cause hearing that, that gets planned out at some point, and it's all scheduled out. That wasn't the case in Paul's world. He had no idea when he was going to get out of prison or if he was going to get out of prison. Can you feel the tension rising? Paul doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. He doesn't know if eventually he's going to be released or if eventually he is going to be executed. And that is reason for worry. It is reason for anxiety. Paul doesn't know if he's going to be there for another year. Uh, he doesn't know if maybe he's only going to have another month to live. And the, he, he doesn't know if maybe it's only going to be one more day before he finds out what's going to happen with him. And there's good reason for the pressure to be mounting for Paul. And so Paul, the author of this letter, is writing to a group of people in a region known as Macedonia, specifically to this, in this city of Philippi. And their situation isn't very good either. In fact, we read in another letter that, that's found in the New Testament uh, a little bit about what's going on with them. We, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, Paul is also the author of this book. I want you to notice what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. And so he's talking about the churches in this particular region in which this uh, church of Philippi would have been included. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These are persecuted and poverty-stricken people. They're persecuted because they are followers of Jesus and they have good reason for worry to be increasing. There are other places in the New Testament that actually talk about how in a Roman society, if you say that Jesus is Lord, you could be accused of treason by the government because they believed that Caesar was the only Lord. And so if you said that Jesus was Lord, you would get kicked out of the city that you were in. You could get kicked out of the region. You could have all of your belongings taken away. You could have your house reduced to rubble. Can you feel the increasing anxiety? There's all of this persecution, and it says that they experienced this extreme poverty which I tend to believe is connected to the fact that because they were followers of Jesus Christ, they had a tough time getting jobs. They had a tough time making a living. They had a tough time providing for themselves. And so here is this pastor, and he is in prison, and he writes to these uh, Christians who are persecuted and who are poor. And there is a very good reason for intensifying anxiety and worry. Now, this is their anxiety, but I don't think it's a whole lot different than our anxiety and our worry that we encounter. We have financial worries. We, we can have uh, financial anxieties. They had financial anxieties. Will there ever be enough income? 
things in the workplace can get a little dicey and we begin to wonder, well, what if my job changes? Or, on the other end of things, you could say, what if my job doesn't change? Reason for worry and anxiety. A lady in her 20s, it seems like everyone around her is getting married and her friend group is changing and she worries that she's going to be left all alone. A guy in his 40s uh, feels like something very similar is happening as there is this distance in his marriage and he feels like he doesn't have anyone to talk to about it. He's all alone. There's reason for worry and fear. Challenges with your car, challenges with your kids, challenges with your relationships, challenges with your jobs, and there are all kinds of reasons for intensifying anxiety. The question that we want to attempt to answer throughout this series is, where is the release valve? How do we relieve the pressure that we can feel? Well, this morning, what I'd like for us to explore is the power of a joyful heart and the ability that joy can have as we develop a joyful heart to begin to reduce anxiety, the anxiety that we feel. In fact, This morning, we're going to talk about four things that a joyful heart sees. And my hope is that as we develop hearts that can see these things, that we begin to reduce worry and fear in our lives. And so we're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, and I just want want you to notice what Paul says in this one particular verse. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. Philippians 4.4. 4. Well, we're going to put this up on the screen. And uh, this is going to be kind of the springboard that we're going to talk about today. And then we're going to keep coming back to it along the way as well. And so what, what I'd like for us to do is to actually read this verse together. Would you read it with me? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is a pretty simple verse here. Just two commands. It's the same command stated twice. It says rejoice and again rejoice. And I think that in its simple form, joy says there's something good here. I think that's what joy observes. Joy says there's something good here. Now, I have a question for you. Who was the first person who said There's something good here. Who was the first being to say there's something good here? If you open up the opening pages of your Bible to the book of Genesis, we read there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you go down through that first chapter, the six days of creation, those of you who know the story know that there's this refrain. That's repeated over and over and over again. And the refrain goes like this. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. God was the first person to rejoice. He's the first person to, uh, to say there is something good here. And, and so if you just think about the creation story. God starts out by making light. 
He makes the day and he makes the night. He, he makes the water and he separates it from the water up in the sky to, and the water that's down below. He separates the sea from the dry land. He creates fish. He creates all of these creatures that are in the water. He fills the birds with the air. He, looks, uh, he fills the air with the birds and he, he looks around and he says, there's something good here. He fills the land with mammals and all sorts of different kinds of plants. He observes all of this and he says, there's something good here. Finally, on the sixth day, he creates people. And at the very end, we read this, these words in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That God was the first one to rejoice, to say, there's something good. This is the first thing that a joyful heart sees. A joyful heart sees God's good work around me. A joyful heart can look out and see what God has done and what God has made and say, there's something good here. And so maybe you can picture a young man, a young woman rather, a young woman, her child, they go out to the park together, they go to this play date together, and there's this joy of pregnancy, there's this joy of birthdays and gotcha days, and there's this joy of laughter and exploring new things, and you think, you know what, there's something good there, Right? Or maybe there's a, a group of friends and they're getting together over food and there's these big smiles on their faces and all of this really delicious food. There's something good there, right? Maybe you picture a picture that comes to your mind or water parks and going, to the, going on vacation and time to just kind of sit back and relax and do some recreational things that you don't normally get to do. What do you see? It's something good. Maybe for you, you're thinking about the start of the football season and you're a Chicago Bears fan and you think of Mitch Trubisky and, and uh, Khalil Mack and you think, wow, we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. What do you see? It's something good. The first thing that a joyful heart sees is God's good work around me. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, okay, Jason, but those aren't the things that, don't, that, that normally give me anxiety. We know that not everything is good in the world around us. You think about Paul, you think about the Philippians, you think about their situations. Here's this pastor who is in prison, people who are persecuted on the brink of poverty. Not everything is going well around them, but Paul is, still has good reason to rejoice. As we open the very first pages of the letter that he's written to them, uh, Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, when I think about you Philippians, when I uh, pray for you, I have good reason for joy. And that's because from the very first day, you guys partnered with me in this partnership of the gospel. Verse 6 of chapter 1, he goes on to say, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is a second thing for the joy that we see. 
A joyful heart sees God's good work in me. Those of you who, those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus, who know him as our Lord, there is a joyous work that he has done in us when we're experiencing his forgiveness, when we understand his grace and his mercy. And Paul says it's worth rejoicing about the work that God has done in us. You think about the guy who used to be angry, but God has done a work in him. And now that, that fuse that used to be so short, it isn't so short anymore. He, he isn't just flying off the handle and yelling at everyone around him. Uh, he, he takes it to the Lord and he finds a calm and a peace about the circumstances of life around him. A joyful heart sees that. And a joyful heart sees God's work in me. People who used to be greedy or uh, fearful as time goes on and God has done his work in them, they become a people who are hopeful and a people who share what they have. And, and a joyful heart sees this. It sees God's work in me. I think that this is part of what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4.4 4, when he says, rejoice in the Lord. And there's something unique about our relationship with Jesus that's worth celebrating. It's worth being joyous about. This phrase, rejoice in the Lord. This is not the only time that Paul uses this phrase in his letter to the Philippians. If you go back just one page to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then the next 10 verses, Paul begins to kind of describe the many things that are worth rejoicing about that God has done in them. He talks about how Jesus has forgiven them. He talks about how God has accepted them, not because of the things that they do, but because of what Jesus has done. And that there's something that's kind of odd that Paul zeroes in on in verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. He, he says, I, 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 I want to know the power of the resurrection and I want to share in his suffering. Now, when I hear the power of his resurrection, I think of something strong and I think of something superhuman, something supernatural. But when I think of sharing in his suffering, I think of something weak and very human, something feeble. These things seem like two polar opposites. So you might say, well, Paul, what, why, what are you talking about? Well, these two things are intimately linked. And to kind of describe what, I, what he's talking about here, I want to just talk about the marshmallow test, all right? And the marshmallow test is a series of experiments that a guy by the name of Dr. Mitchell did in the late uh, 1960s and early 70s. Now, uh, Mitchell was a professor of psychology in, uh, at the University of Stanford, and he would bring in these kids ranging from ages three to uh, eight years old, and he would bring them into a room, he would sit them down, and he would set a marshmallow in front of them. And then he would say, hey, you can have this marshmallow now, but if you wait until I come back, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. And then he would walk out of the room and he would observe uh, how they would react, how they would handle this. Now, 
Dr. Mitchell started doing this back in the 60s, but this is something that has been repeated by others since that time. In fact, this morning, we actually have a picture here of how one kid reacts to this experiment. This little guy is just trying so hard not to eat this marshmallow. You can almost feel it. The marshmallow is sitting in front of him, and in his own childlike way, he is just suffering as he is waiting to choose to delay gratification. He's, he's choosing to um, uh, think through this and, and what this is going to mean if he waits. Now, there's a, a psychological term that's going on here, and, this, uh, and that's delayed gratification, right? This, this is an experiment in delayed gratification. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. I, I think that Paul is talking about cosmic Christian delayed gratification, that there are things that we are willing to suffer, that there are very good things that we are willing to say no to, some negative experiences that we are willing to walk through, all because we know about the reward that is coming later on, the power of the resurrection. Paul says, I want to take this test. I want to participate in his suffering and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Now, sometimes I, I think that we uh, aren't very uh, excited about this. We're not, it's not very enticing to us. And I think that one of the reasons why this is not so enticing to us is because of our bad, poor view of the life that is to come. We've pictured in our minds that heaven is going to be this place where there are these white fluffy clouds and we're just going to be sitting there playing these harps. Now, that might sound good for a moment, but the, the reality is, is that that's not very enticing to spend eternity like that, right? But the Bible gives us some glimpses about what the life to come is going to be like. Little snapshots of the resurrection and what life is going to be like after that. The Apostle John wrote uh, a book. He wrote the book of Revelation, and it gives us these snapshots of what's to come. There's another guy, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who lived 100 years before Jesus, and he also gives us a snapshot. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah speaks on behalf of God, and I want you to listen here to how he describes the world that is to come. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So this world that's to come is going to be so great that all of the bad things of this life and all of the bad things of this world, we're not even going to remember them. He keeps writing, he says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard the sound of weeping and, cry, and the cry of distress. You say, wow, this is great. There's not going to be any bad things in heaven. He goes on, verse 23. You shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Will they, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
uh, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Did you notice that he says that there will be work one day in heaven? But it's not going to be wasted work. It's not going to be work that's going to be in vain. You're not going to be worried about your kids and all stressed out about that. Instead, you are going to experience the blessing of family life. All of the animals of creation are going to be present there. But but they're not going to harm each other. They're all going to be getting along. I think that this is what a joyful heart can see. A joyful heart can see God's good world to come. Third thing that a joyful heart sees is God's good world to come. All right, so what does that have to do with anxiety? What does that have to do with the marshmallows? Well, imagine a guy who comes home from work. It's been a long day. He wants a little bit of peace and quiet. He walks into his house. His kids are running around. There's chaos going on. And this anxiety can begin to rise. But what if he were to deny himself and not need peace and quiet right now? What if he did not need to eat that marshmallow? But what if he could wait for a day when there would be plenty of peace and quiet in order to go around? Think of a student who's working hard on all of these grades that they're trying to get in order to get into the right school, in order to have the the job that they want. And there's often a lot of anxiety that comes along with that. What if they didn't need to eat that marshmallow? What if there was a day that was coming that every single job would be a great job? A guy's driving himself crazy in his mid-50s just trying to pack full his 401k. He wants to have a great retirement. What what if he doesn't have to eat that marshmallow? What what if he can see a day that is coming where everything feels like a great retirement? Joyful heart sees God's work in the world. As it practices cosmic delayed gratification, I think that maybe we can begin to reduce the anxiety that we feel in life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, that's going to be hard. I mean, to to constantly have this forward-thinking view, to be willing to choose um, uh, some negative experiences or deny myself some positive experiences, that sounds really tough. That sounds impossible. It sounds difficult. Well, that's true. In fact, it gets even worse. It even gets more difficult because at the very end of this verse in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 4, Paul writes this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, anytime, anywhere, with anyone, under any circumstances, rejoice in the Lord always. And I think that there is a particular angle here that, it, that could be a little difficult. In another letter that Paul writes, he begins with this idea, he brings up this idea of rejoicing as he writes this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, I want to focus in particularly on that idea of rejoicing with those who rejoice. And this is the fourth thing that I think a joyful heart sees. A joyful heart sees God's good work for them. Joyful heart sees God's good work for them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, so like birthday celebrations, retirement parties, rejoice with those who rejoice, right? You know, those are the easy ones. Man steps into a small group and another guy who's there is absolutely just ecstatic about this promotion that he got. Better income, better opportunities, better benefits, and this guy just feels absolutely stuck in his occupation. A joyful heart sees God's good work for them. A woman steps into a baby shower. They're playing the name game. They're opening presents and they're all there. This joy and celebration is going on while her and her spouse have been struggling with the fact that they haven't been able to get pregnant and they want to. Well, a joyful heart sees God's good work for them. College roommate is having an incredible internship experience, but they're still trying to figure out their own uh, major, what, what major they're even going to declare. A joyful heart sees God's good work for them. A family is raving about a sister-in-law's cheesy potatoes, but no one will even touch your green bean casserole. A joyful heart sees God's good work in them. Joyful heart has the ability to see God's good work in creation. It has the ability to see God's good work around me. It has the ability to see God's good work in me. God's good work in the world to come. And it celebrates God's good work in them. We're going to need a lot of reminders about this. I mean, if our hearts are going to be shaped in the way that we want them to be shaped, we're going to need to have these consistent reminders about this. There's a definition about joy that we talked about a few weeks back in our study through Philippians, and the definition went like this. Joy is a focus on the generosity of God that expresses itself through gratitude and praise, even in seasons of extreme pain and deep disappointment. When things aren't going well, a joyful heart is still able to see God's good work around me somewhere. It sees God's good work in me. It sees God's good work in the world to come. And it sees God's good work in other people. And it says, there's something good here. Paul seems to think that reminders are very necessary for us. In fact... Our verse, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I find it interesting here. Why, why did Paul find this particular activity worth repeating? Why, why doesn't he say, pray to the Lord always? Again, I say pray. I mean, prayer is a really important thing. So why, didn't he, why doesn't Paul repeat that? Or sing to the Lord always. I say again, uh, sing. Or or tell other people about what Jesus has done. Witness about the Lord always. Again, I will say witness. Why is rejoicing so important to Paul? In fact, in this letter to the Philippians, he uses the word joy or rejoice or be glad. Um, He uses it, he repeats it 15 times in this very short letter. Paul, why is this so important? Well, I want to explain this just by talking about our family vacation this summer. In fact, I have a picture here of our vacation that I'm going to put up on the screen here this morning. 
But just about a month and a half ago, my wife and I and our four kids, we packed our clothes and we put them into a suitcase and, and we crammed it all into the minivan and we spent nearly 20 hours driving down to San Antonio, Texas. Now, we didn't drive straight through. We drove about 10 hours the first day, and then we stopped, and we stayed overnight in a hotel. We got up the next day and drove the rest of, rest of the way. On vacation, we got to go swimming every single day. We went out to eat at some very memorable restaurants with great food. We got to see this incredible light show that was done on the side of this uh, historic building downtown San Antonio. There was a, a beautiful, peaceful river in the middle of the city as well, and we got to walk on the river walk. We got to explore these little shops, uh, attend an outdoor music performance, and, and go on a boat ride down the river together. We went to a rodeo while we were in San Antonio. That's the first time I've ever been to a rodeo, and I grew up on a farm. And as you see here in the picture, we went to the Alamo. We didn't just go once to the Alamo. We went four times to the Alamo. And we wanted to make sure that we would remember the Alamo, right? That was one of the big reasons why we went to San Antonio in the first place. Well, we experienced a bunch of great things on our vacation this summer. But for me, as much as I loved all the good food, as much as I loved all the great experiences that we went on, the best thing for me was spending time with my wife and my four kids. Now, I don't have to tell you, but you know that life can often be very busy. There's baseball and gymnastics, ballet and uh, soccer, bowling and hockey, dodgeball and art class. There are friends coming over to our house and uh, our kids are going over to their friends' houses. Things at church, things at school, things in the community. As a family, sometimes I feel like we're going in so many different directions that I can't even keep it straight. I sometimes think that my, uh, about my kids and the anxieties that they face. Uh, trying to navigate the complexity of friendships can create a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. Sue and I, we pay for most everything that our kids need, but uh, we, we do give our kids an allowance, and we expect them to buy certain things on their own. And there can be anxiety over finances. A new school year is about to begin, and there can be challenges ahead. There will be challenges ahead. New challenges, new anxieties, new worries that are going to come along with all of that. But on vacation, we stayed in this Airbnb, and we sat on the couches in this living room, and we were just laughing, and we were carrying on, and we were having a good time together, and we were remembering stories from years ago, and, and all of this joy was there as we sat in the living room. The food was good. The swimming was nice. Walking on the river walk, that was relaxing. But the best thing, the best thing on vacation was sitting around in the living room with everyone. What if that's how God feels? What if God loves nothing more than to hear His children rejoicing? 
What if in the middle of their anxieties, in the middle of their worries and their concerns, that that God loves nothing more than hearing them celebrate, hearing them rejoice. And as we develop, and as we do that, we develop a joyful heart. Joyful heart sees God's good work around us and declares there's something good there. A joyful heart remembers what Jesus has done. It sees the good work that God has done in me and through me, and it declares there's something good here. A joyful heart can travel through difficult pain, be willing to take that on, and can look at God's good world and say, you know what, there's something good here. And a joyful heart can even look at others and see that there is something good that God, some good work that God has done for them. It can, it can rejoice and say, there's something good there. Friends, I think that rejoicing is absolutely pleasing to the heart of God. And rejoicing is good for our hearts as well. And so, I say along with the Apostle Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray.